Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 38, On the Nature of Cerulean Building Materials, where we will be looking at Chapters 81 through 83 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the stories we tell. As per usual, each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemo. So the week after that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we'll share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dog Books, though we kind of would love to be, but we're not. Second. Our discussions naturally assume that either A, you have read all of the books that we are talking about, The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and any ancillary materials, or you really just don't give a shit about spoilers. Needless to say, we're going to be spoiling the heck out of things. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And now... For the 45 second recap, it is time for you to recap the story, at least from this section. And as always, if I can do this in under 45 seconds, I don't have to eat cherries. I mean, I'm just going to put it out there. You never have to eat cherries. Oh, you are opening up a wonderful loophole. We could get lutefisk. Which I also wouldn't have to eat. They would just smell up the house. Or we could get you balut. Again, wouldn't have to eat it. It would just smell up the house. Or... Audience, what else would be repugnant? Plenty. But, like you just said, I wouldn't actually have to eat it. It would just make our place miserable. (laughs) I don't think that's going to be much of a problem, though, either way, because I think I can do this in under 45 seconds. You got a timer ready? I do, surprisingly enough. You sure you're ready? Pretty sure I'm ready. In three, two, one, go. While sitting around the fire, the band exchanged stories of love long since retired and Felurian's strange glory. Hespa gets mad when Day Dan goes on too long, and though Kvoth is sad, Martin counsels him to go along. During a lesson on Adam, Kvoth has an epiphany about the gestures of his friend that explains his periphany. With this knowledge in hand, Kvoth gains an understanding of plenty and grasps a perspective more grand about the inner life of Tempe. Later, Martin recounts the tale of Taberlin the Great, though conflicting accounts make him feel quite irate. Quoth takes over as storyteller and tells an absurdist farce that illuminates the methods of his professor in ways that he can parse. 36 seconds even. Nice. Noice. Noice. I don't even have to mess with any of that cherry stuff or any of the other stuff that you were threatening. Oh, but wouldn't it be funny? It would. But so would it be funny if you had to as well. I'm leaving that in, but talk like Yoda you did. I did, yes. All right. 
I think it's about time for us to get into the meat of the story. Sounds good. Chapter 81, our first chapter in this passage, is The Jealous Moon. It sort of sets the tone for the next couple chapters. It's really more of a hangout chapter. We don't really get a whole lot of events, but we just get character interactions between Quoth, Martin, Daydan, Hespa, and Tempe. So they're done for the day. They're hanging out around the campfire, telling stories. And our first story is Hespa telling this romantic story about the love that this queen has for her serving boy. And clearly she's talking about Daydan. I don't know. I think that she might clearly be telling the story of the Princess Bride. That could be too. <laughs> but like there's definitely her looking longingly at Daydan throughout all of this, who is, of course, completely oblivious, or at least he seems to be. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think that what's happening with Daydan is that he has convinced himself so thoroughly that he has no shot, that he has no shot. Oh, quite probably. I don't think there's any room for argument on that. He's definitely missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. So then Daydan decides to follow this up with a tale of Felurian. If you've read the books, you know who Felurian is. If you haven't read the books... Why are you listening? <laughs> you can probably assume who Felurian is because Felurian is the mystical fae creature that is basically a siren. Yeah. But there isn't actually a whole lot of story here. There's mostly just a lot of over-the-top descriptions of sexuality. I wouldn't even say sexuality. I would just say naked person. Which, I mean, for some people, total turn on. And for Hespa, quickest way to piss her off. Yeah. So there are some cool bits of foreshadowing here that I think are worth considering. So first of all, Daydan describes Felurian as the lady of the first quiet, which I'm wondering if this is tied to the silence of three parts that kicks off and ends each one of these books. Or if Felurian somehow or part of the Fae or something else contributes or is one of the silences? Right. Or if this is something that she has taught Quoth. For something that's as much about sound and music, those moments of silence mean a lot in this story. So I think there has to be something there. One thing I would like to point out, since you are going down the rabbit hole of foreshadowing within the little story vignettes that are being told, is there anything more to the queen and the serving boy you know that could also be a reference to lady lackless aka quoth's mom and his dad yep it could also be a reference to denna who is in her own way a sort of royalty a sort of queenly figure in the story and quoth who is the self-styled pauper there's some of that. I kind of think that 
It's a romance between people of very imbalanced power dynamics. And had their genders been reversed, we would think it was really gross. Yeah. When you put it that way, I now think it's pretty gross anyway. Yeah. It's something that's baked into a lot of these. And we don't often think about what that actually means for relationships. We don't interrogate it. Right. And it's oftentimes romanticized in the monoculture that we live in. And yet it's there, right? And I think it's always worth interrogating that and thinking about some of the things that we take for granted in these. There's also some really cool foreshadowing within Felurian's song as relayed here. A couple words stood out to me. I don't know what any of these mean, but it's just like these words felt familiar. So the line Losi and Delen reminded me a lot of Losi, who is the serving girl at Crossan. Again, I don't really know what any of these words mean, but they seem to mean something. And I note here that Kvothe feels like there's something haunting in this melody and this rhythm, even as it's kind of third hand at this point. He thinks there's something real to it. He also thinks that there is something compelling and utterly unfamiliar, which is an oddity when somebody who is so attuned to languages feels like a different language is so wholly foreign. Very likely to do with the Fae. Also for someone for whom music is so ingrained and for whom music just makes sense to have any bit of music that feels wholly unfamiliar and alien to him. You know, I think that says something about the way oftentimes we think the structures of music and language are immutable or there's something inherent to them, but they're all made up constructs. And every now and then you discover places and cultures where it's been constructed differently. So we've talked a little bit about Hespa's reaction to Dedan's story, which is to get upset and angry that it seems like Dedan is lusting after a fae creature that has almost no other purpose other than to be lusted after. Probably just angry that he brought it up. I mean... At this point, it's a little bit less a story and more just a high fantasy penthouse letter. Right. But then you've got Tempe's reaction. Tempe, who doesn't really understand the language, but understands bits and pieces and can pick up a little bit, isn't sure exactly how this person, fake creature, what have you, kills men. And Foth is insanely uncomfortable with the idea of just plainly stating anything to do with sex. I get it. I was that age once. And I think it's a topic he's fine alluding to, but has a hard time talking about directly. Woefully inexperienced with. Yeah. And... I'm willing to bet that at this point, stories of Felurian that Kvothe has heard in passing probably represent the extent of his knowledge of sexuality. I kind of get the impression that 
The stories of Florian are akin to the naughty comics room. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. It has a kind of Tijuana Bible air to it. Explain. Tijuana Bibles are pornographic comic books. Oh, didn't know that. I was thinking more hentai, but okay, whatever. It could be that too. <laughs> um, I'm actually kind of curious to get your take on Tempe's read here. So when I heard it at first, it sounds like he's afraid that there is like this powerful fighter in the woods. And Kvothe clarifies, no, she's not one of the ADEM. And then <laughs> he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he's just like, but I don't understand. How does this woman kill people? Dan goes, well, you know about sex, right? He goes, yeah, I know about sex. <laughs> I mean, we already know that he knows because we saw him chatting up a girl and then he was just gone. And so was she. And once that's out of the way, he's still kind of confused. So what does this have to do with killing people? <laughs> I think he's horrified by the idea that physical intimacy in that way could lead to someone's death. I think it's legitimately like, no, 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 no. That's not for that. In fact, no, 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 no. That's never for that. True. And he comes from a culture that is a lot more practical when it comes to sexuality. It's just a thing that people do for fun. And that's that. One thing that I did note here is that sometimes you have stories that are clearly told from the perspective of the male gaze, which can be incredibly off-putting to people who don't share those particular attractions. I guess that's probably why I'm not terribly offended by the story of Florian and a naked person in the woods with the pool and all that stuff. A, I can imagine what she looks like and she's probably very attractive. I have the ability to have aesthetic attraction in addition to romantic attraction. I just don't inherently find stories like that to be necessarily sexually attractive to me. Like, that's not a thing I experience. Though I understand that 99 whatever percent of people probably do. And I can understand that there is an appeal. I just don't feel that appeal. I think it's kind of the equivalent of like hanging up a pinup in a room that's meant for a partner almost. That wouldn't necessarily be sexually attracted or aesthetically attracted to that pinup. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing is like, I'm panromantic. I find all genders attractive. Like I don't have a particular affinity towards or against any combination of parts, let's say. But I can imagine that if you don't have an attraction to a person that looks like, for all intents and purposes, the pen-up, that that might lead you to just this weird feeling of no. I also kind of get the feeling that we know that Hespa's carrying a torch for Daydan. And so therefore she has some jealousy towards a fictional character for all intents and purposes. Yeah. And 
also seeing Day Dan just getting really into pantomiming the shape of this fictional body that is idealized and probably does not look much like her. So she's hurt. Yeah. I don't know. I just find the reactions that she is written to have to be a little reductive. Yeah. I can also see it being sort of a preemptive rejoinder at a lot of the real life fan reactions to the sections where Felurian comes into the story for realsies. Fair enough. We also have the title of this chapter, The Jealous Moon, and lots of references to the moon within Daydan's telling of Felorian and how basically the moon is lighting her skin and whatever. But the jealous one is Hespa. In many ways, she's the jealous moon in this story. And We'll also see her tell a story about the moon herself later on when she tells the story of Jax. So I think that's something to keep in mind. But not for this episode. Right. Not for this episode. So Hespa kind of storms off and Daydan gets a little huffy. And Kvothe's initial reaction is to try and smooth things out between them. And I love Martin's like, oh, no, this is not worth it, kid. <laughs> Just give them the space. They'll figure it out. You don't need to fix this. Or they won't figure it out. But you still don't need to fix this. Yeah. His warning here is attractive as some things are, you have to weigh your risks. How badly do you want it? And how badly are you willing to be burned? And then we get, I lay on my back, looked at the stars and thought of Denna. Both is leaving Hespa and Dedan alone, but he's got his own torch. Yeah. I also noticed a little bit here where when you're in a position of leadership, it can be very tempting to think that you have to do something about everything. And there are times when that something, the best something, may be to do nothing. To recognize that it's out of the scope for what you can correct for. Or act on, and maybe it's best just to let it be. So then we move to chapter 82, Barbarians. This one is really just Kvoth and Tempe. This is where we get to see more of Kvoth sort of learning from Tempe and starting to imitate him a little bit. So one of the things that I really love about the relationship between Kvothe and Tempe is that even as they are teaching one another, they're in many ways equals. They both mess up and they make it safe for the other person to feel safe and to make their own mistakes. So when Tempe sees Kvothe mess something up in Adem, he's more willing to take risks and try to say things in a Turin. Because he's okay messing up. Exactly. One thing about this that gets me too is it reads like either Quoth is aware that he messes up or he may be messing up more in order for Tempe to feel comfortable. There's a little bit of code switching when it comes to that kind of behavior, if that's what he's doing. In the same way that if I'm having a text conversation back and forth with a friend who does not have the same 
adherence to grammar that I typically have. I'm more willing to match them so that it doesn't come off like I'm being pretentious or trying to correct them or trying to lord my kind of obsession with not looking dumb. So that's more what it is for me. But I don't want to like make people think that I think they're dumb. And so I'm more willing to let my grammar slide or my spelling slide rather than sit there and methodically fix it every time I fat finger something. Because I know that they can probably understand me. I can understand them. We're still getting the point across. But if I'm having a conversation with someone who is naturally more likely to have correct grammar and correct spelling and whatever, I'm more likely to mirror that too. I think it might be a little of column A and a little of column B. I think Kvothe is learning as much from the mistakes that he's making as anything else. Because every time he makes a mistake, Tempe is giving him a detailed description of something that Kvothe didn't know. And Kvothe is making the kind of mistakes that it makes sense for someone who's just starting to learn a language to make. One of the other things that I got out of here is when Kvothe starts to get that the hand gestures mean something, it opens up a whole new world for him. We get a whole lot of lampshading of, and Tempe made a hand gesture and it annoyed me. And Tempe made a hand gesture and it annoyed me. And Tempe made a hand gesture and wouldn't look at me. We get a whole lot of that throughout the previous chapters. Like nearly every interaction that Kvothe has with Tempe puts some kind of light bulb over the fact that Tempe is doing this. And Kvothe doesn't really interrogate it until the light bulb goes off in his head. And what's cool to me here, it's something that Tempe has never really explained to him, but it's something that Kvothe has noticed a pattern on and it's a subtle thing. And it also represents him suddenly having sort of this light bulb when he sees something happen for the first time, even though he's seen it a hundred times. And he suddenly has kind of a paradigm shift when he thinks about why Tempe is the way he is. Kvothe has this kind of light bulb moment a few times throughout the section. It's almost as if he's just been going and going and going and existing and not having any time to stop and think and kind of let his mind wander to where it comes up with answers. And during this trek through the woods, Quoth has time to be bored. Yeah, it's time for the sleeping mind to wake up a little bit. And one of the YouTube channels that I watch, Veritasium, has had a video about why it's good to be bored. Why you don't always need to fill every second of every day with noise or with activity. You have to give your mind a chance to rest. By not doing that, you're risking your short-term memory, which risks your long-term memory. You get into patterns, you get into behavioral cycles, and you kind of just exist for existing rather than exist for a reason. And 
you don't necessarily think about the why or the details or how to fix a problem. You just keep living with the problem. Yeah. I really love this when he realizes, oh, Tempe is not looking at my face because he was not socialized to think that that's where you look to understand a person's emotional state. You're supposed to look at their hand. Right. It's not quite sign language, but it is also not not sign language. It's an enhancement. Just the way that tone might be for most spoken languages. And later on, as we discover, it can also be a thing where in close quarters... You might be having a conversation and being deceptive face to face and hiding your hands from onlookers, but showing your companion your true feelings. There also is another thing that I caught here um, where Tempe talks about how this way of doing things is the nature of civilization because civilization is all about constructed things whether that is relationship structures or etiquette, ethics, you know, codes of behavior, general cultural mores, folklore, <laughs> all of these are constructed and they're designed, if not intentionally, but they exist to help mediate the differences between people who aren't intimately close. Whereas you have this idea of the natural, the barbaric, that's for children and people that you're desperately intimate with. He's saying around family, you can let your guard down, but around most other people, it is more civilized to behave in this manner where you don't show every expression on your face. Yeah. And when Quoth realizes that Tempe has a lot of things that he is expressing, but in a very restrained way, or in a way that seems very restrained to Quoth, more accurately, he starts to recognize that Tempe has this really vibrant inner life that Quoth hadn't been able to access before. It's like when you meet someone for the first time and they seem kind of standoffish until you get to know them. And then you start to realize that, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on under the hood. And maybe there are only the smallest of hints on the surface of what that is, but you start to read those. And then next thing you know, that person is uproariously funny to you because you understand where they're coming from and what they're meaning when they're saying these subtle things. When you catch on to their sense of humor. Yeah. And humor is one of the hardest things to translate across cultures because it's so reliant on a lot of contexts that we spend a lot of time growing up in. Humor oftentimes lies in something unexpected. And when everything is unexpected, none of it makes sense. When everything is unexpected, nothing is unexpected. Exactly. <laughs> it's when someone violates a social norm, that's funny. But if you don't know what the social norms are, you have no clue why that's funny at all. And we run into that a little bit, too, where Quoth tries to make jokes and Tempe doesn't get it. And Tempe tries to make jokes and nobody gets it. 
And then you also have things like puns or idiomatic expressions. When I was learning French in college, one of the hardest things was realizing that a lot of the things that we say don't have any literal meaning. Like they're tied to this idiomatic expression that we don't even think about anymore. Sports metaphors, for instance, like when, you know, someone puts together a proposal that's really good, we'll say something like they really hit that one out of the park. And for us in America, who even if we don't follow baseball, we know, oh, that's a home run. That is one of the best things that you can do in that sport. We know that it's good. But if you were to say they knocked that out of the park to someone who had never heard of baseball, for whom that wasn't a part of their daily expressions. If you tried to just translate it verbatim in French. Yeah, that's just not going to make any sense. And people are just going to look at you with shrugs like they don't know about baseball. They don't care about baseball. I think that that's an OK example, but not necessarily accurate because I don't know, culturally speaking, that French people don't know anything about baseball. Let me put it this way. Our French teacher was aggressively uninterested in baseball. I am aggressively uninterested in baseball. Or there's other phrases like get all our ducks in a row. There you go. That, I think, is a little more what you mean. Also, hit the hay to mean going to sleep. Stabbed in the back is not a literal stabbing. You know, all my plans are up in the air between a rock and a hard place. I'm at loose ends on this. Things that we know what they mean because we know what they mean, not because we know what each word in the sentence means. Yeah. And humor relies a lot on that sort of thing, that assumed cultural context and those little bits of shorthand. And so naturally it doesn't translate. A little more within this chapter, Kvoth comes up with a question that I think is interesting. Okay, so you express your expressions through your hand gestures, but why don't you laugh with your hands? Why laugh out loud? You really do laugh out loud, and it's actually kind of off-putting when you're doing all of your other expressions through hand gestures and having a blank face. But when you are super incredibly amused, you just like burst out laughing like a mad person. And I love Tempe's response. He says, this is something that it is not good to hold in. It is good to express joy. And Quoth says, is it the same for crying? Yes. Gut reactions, gut emotions. Those are not things that should be restrained. Yeah, I think there is a lot of interesting cultural learning here that they get to go through together. Tempe says... But laugh, here lives laugh. And he rested the flat of his hand against my stomach. He ran his fingers straight up to my mouth and spread his fingers. Pushback laugh is not good, not healthy. It feels really good to let out a good laugh. There's something honest about it, and I think that's really important. The other thing that happens in this chapter is Tempe does a martial art I guess, 
known as the K-Tan. Yeah, it seems like this is analogous to the real world example of a kata in Japanese martial arts, where it's a series of practiced moves that go together. It's sort of a routine, sort of an imaginary fight. I would think that it would be akin to that or akin to Tai Chi. Tai Chi would be an example of that sort of thing as well, yeah, where like it's a routine that in Tempe's mind, he's going through forms and he's doing moves to counter imaginary opponents, attacking and defending. The reason I say Tai Chi is because it's slow and methodical, requiring balance and specific shapes that you make your body into. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. When I did karate, katas were much the same way. It was about doing it slow and methodically. I think there's something kind of interesting there. And Quoth, of course, has no context for what any of this is. So he just starts aping it. Right. He just mimics. And Tempe doesn't say anything because that's not Tempe's job. Tempe is aggressively not doing this job because he did not sign up for it. He does not want to be responsible for teaching Quoth the wrong things. On top of that, it's a cultural signifier. It is something that the Adem civilization does. And everyone who is not from Adem is a barbarian. And barbarians cannot learn it. The thing about Quoth, though is that I don't think he even stops to wonder if this is offensive that he's mimicking without knowing what any of it means. But the second time he tries it, his muscles are so shaky from having done it before that he can barely do it at all, which makes him more determined to keep trying. Yeah. Quoth is stubborn and tenacious, and as he says it himself, he likes a challenge, which makes sense. He's bored. <laughs> so let's move on to chapter 83, Lack of Sight. So this is another Hangout Around the Campfire episode. Hangout is relative. This is more of a bigger fest between the entire crew. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of that. This is like we've talked about with the group stages where they've kind of gotten to the point where they're so used to each other that familiarity has bred a little bit of contempt. So the chapter starts off with a retelling of Taberlin's story, this time by Martin. It's slightly different in the way that a lot of folklore is slightly different depending on who's telling the story. There is talk about a king named Cyphus. We know from the rhyme of the Chandrian that Cyphus is the one who brings the blue flame. Spelled differently. And in this case, he's not named as one of the Chandrian. He's just a king. Right. However, to be very clear, in older tales, you might have the same name written down 16 different spellings because phonetically it could be spelled a million different ways. Oh, yeah, because... We didn't have codified spelling for the bulk of our recorded history. And we can assume that the same is true in Aturin. Also, 
if you look at names like Paisley, you can have a ton of silent letters. That name could be 15 letters long. It really could. It's not even that hard to think of how that would happen. Oh, most certainly. You just try Welsh. Oh, dear. And so it might be that Cyphus, the Chandrian Cyphus, somehow intertwined himself with the tale of Taberlin, but we'll probably never know. It's definitely a piece of deep folklore. He's described as sort of the sorcerer king, which calls to mind something out of like D&D Dark Sun, where the sorcerer kings are just a whole bunch of mad tyrants who have unlimited magical power that they've gotten by draining energy from the world around them. So yeah, there's something sinister in that descriptor there. I also caught that there's a few more details in this, like his staff, sword, and cloak of no particular color are the main things that Cyphus steals from Taberlin. Though we do get mention of the key, the coin, and the candle a little bit later. We also get word that the sword is made of copper, which is an unusual choice. As Daydan says, copper doesn't hold an edge. It is a soft metal. It wouldn't hold up to use, not even normal use, just use. But what we also know about copper is that it seems to be immune to the peculiarities of naming for whatever reason. As witnessed by Elidin's room being lined with copper in Haven. Yeah. My theory about Elidin is that he's not actually nuts. And that somebody stuck him in Haven to get rid of him for a little while. Elodin does strike me as the sort of person that you would probably, if you were trying to do something you shouldn't, he would get in the way. I wonder if it was him. I could see him trying to take him off the board by having him labeled as insane. But we digress. Keep going. <laughs> One of the things that was kind of fun to me here was when they talk about the cloak of no particular color. Everyone in the group has their own version of it. And what's really cool is how when they talk about it, even though each one of them has a radically different version of what that cloak looks like as they describe it, they all kind of bond over having these shared absurd thoughts about it. It could possibly be a dirty gray. It could possibly be shimmery and change color depending on the sunlight hitting it. Tempe thinks it's white, which is interesting to me because white is not the absence of color, but rather all colors together. Depending on if you're looking at light or pigment. Print geek, huh? Print geek, but more graphic design geek because I am talking about light, not pigment. And then, of course, Martin thinks it's a pale sky blue color. Kvothe has a couple ideas. It could be sort of a patchwork thing. It could be camouflage. It could just be a really dark color that nobody can quite see. Foreshadowing his cloak made of shadow by Florian. But I did just enjoy how they all have these different perspectives on it. And none of them are rude about it, right? They're not saying, oh, well, I'm right and you're wrong. It's all, well, this is just always what came to mind when I thought about it. And that can be a really fun exercise. And I think... Oftentimes, when we book fans finally get visual representations of our favorite stories, 
there can be this really strong impulse to nitpick how that thing looks. And mind you, dear audience, we are not talking about the race or eye color or whatever the heck of characters necessarily. As in, we're not complaining or loudly stating that we had imagined something different, therefore we are right and the showrunners or what have you are wrong. Also recognizing that when a lot of the things that we find to be classic stories were written, the people that got published, very much older white men, cis men, straight men, white. Therefore, they're not thinking necessarily in the 1940s or what have you that my story should include more black people or more women or what have you. So when you update it for a general audience for today rather than a 1940s audience, your representation is going to be different. We're talking more along the lines of, oh, that city, I didn't imagine that city to look like that. Or that cloak, I didn't imagine that cloak to look like that. Or things like bits of production design. Like when I read Dune, I imagined ornithopters looked very different from the way David Lynch thought they did. And you know what? David Lynch wasn't wrong to necessarily think that that's what they looked like. I didn't like that as much as the version in my head, but the version in my head was in no way canonical. Also, the version in your head would have been really hard to produce in the 1980s. Correct. The version in my head looked a lot closer to Denis Villeneuve's version, but that's cool. That's just partly, again, what they were able to produce with their own visual effects budgets and techniques. And it happens to line up closer to what I was imagining. But even still, like the finer details and everything that get put into a visual representation are always going to be far more detailed and in-depth than what we just come up with in our minds. So I think there's something really fun about comparing these little hypotheticals of what did I picture? What did you picture? And it can be really cool. Right. Like, how do you represent a cloak of no particular color in a visual medium? Right. How do you even think about a cloak of no particular color just as a thing, just in your mind? I think that's a fun little bit there, and I enjoyed that. Of course, all of this back and forth does lead to some MST3K style nitpicking, which doesn't go over so well with Martin because he's in the end going, fine, you tell the story. Right. If you like Quoth storytelling so much, how about you just have Quoth tell us a story or finish the one that I'm trying to tell you? And of course, Quoth doesn't like that he's being put into this position. I gotta say, though, Martin saying... Well, if you don't like it, somebody else can tell the story. Has an interesting contrast to old Cobb, who was like, shut up, I'm telling the story. <laughs> yeah, there are some parallels between old Cobb and Martin. But I think Martin is perhaps a little more insecure in his role as the storyteller. I'd say he's also more reactive. Yeah, he doesn't like being interrupted, 
and who can blame him. But he's also more prone to say, fine, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. You do it. He's also getting sick. Yeah, we see that he's had to take a couple swigs of water here. He's been coughing. He's been clearing his throat. Those are signs that usually also mean that you yourself are feeling a headache or you're feeling gross or body aches or something already. Your body is telling you to slow down. He's probably not feeling super great. So that probably also goes a long way to explaining his irritation. I know I'm not at my best when I have a cold. I know I'm not at my best when I feel like my body is run down or what have you. So then Kvothe decides, well, I'm just going to do the worst story I can think of. So they'll never ask me to tell another story. One that his dad told him to shut him up as a kid. It's basically a blue brick story. Okay, explain the blue brick story, because I think this is awesome. So a blue brick story, it takes its name from a joke. And it's very loosely described as a joke. I don't even remember all the specifics of it. Look it up. Now, let me find it. Because I think that for those that haven't heard of this, this is a rather amusing thing to think about. And for those that have, they probably want you to tell it right. Circling back to the Princess Bride. No, Grandpa, you got to tell it right. All right. So the joke goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a man who wanted to build a house. But being a little eccentric, he wanted to build the house using only 99 bricks. So he went to the hardware store and said, hello, I'd like to buy 99 bricks. The owner of the store told him, I'm sorry, we only sell bricks in quantities of 100. Well, can't you cut me a deal or something? The man asks. Nope. Sorry, replied the owner. So the guy bought 100 bricks. So he took the bricks to his lot and he built a house using 99 bricks. Now, if you do the math, 100 minus 99 is one. So he had one brick left and he took that brick and he just chucked it way up into the air. Yeah, that's the end of the joke. And you're left unfulfilled because that doesn't sound like a punchline. There's another joke here. So there's this guy riding in an airplane and he decided to smoke a cigar. Unfortunately, he was sitting next to a woman with a dog. The dog began coughing. So the lady said, excuse me, sir, but could you please put out your cigar? It's really bothering my dog. He angrily replied, no, I won't. You shouldn't have a dog on this flight anyways. This is a non-smoking flight. You need to put the cigar out, she said. They argue back and forth, get rid of the dog, put out the cigar, and so on. Finally, the man said, look, I'll compromise with you. If you get rid of your dog, I'll get rid of the cigar. And he was thinking she'll never want to give up her dog. But much to his surprise, she agreed to the deal. The lady opened the window, amazingly, without causing the air pressure inside the plane to drop and threw her dog out. The man, thinking he had another cigar anyway, threw his cigar out the window, thinking he had won. However, the woman suddenly reached out the window and grabbed her dog's leash. As she pulled the dog back in, she was thinking that she'd won. But do you know what the dog had in its mouth? The brick. Yeah, the point is, it, it's a long story that goes nowhere. And then you have another seemingly unrelated story that comes right back to the thing. And it's, it's absurd. And... There was another one that my dad used to tell called the hairy fish joke. So there's this guy, he's going fishing and he catches this fish and he takes it back home with him. And on his way home, he stops to get a haircut. And while he's sitting in the barber's chair, the fish flops out of the cooler that he's carrying it in and rolls around on the barber's floor and gets covered in hair. And 
the barber looks at it and says, hey, man, that's the hairiest fish I've ever seen. You should enter that into the local hairy fish contest. And so the guy goes, yeah, sounds like a good idea. And so he enters into the neighborhood hairy fish contest. The first judge says, that's a hairy fish. Second judge says, that's that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going on up to the town. So the next day he goes to the town hairy fish competition. And the first judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Second judge says, that's an incredibly hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. So you're going on up. You're going to the county. So he goes to the county hairy fish competition. First judge says, that's a hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going to state. So he goes to the statewide competition and there's all the hairiest fishes of the state. And the first judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a super hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going up to regionals. So then he goes to the regional competition. And sure enough, the first judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going up to nationals. So week later, the guy takes his hairy fish to the national competition. This is the hairiest fish in the entire nation. First judge says, wow, that's a hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going to the continental. So now he's at the competition for the hairiest fish on the continent. And there's so many hairy fish all over the place. And so he takes them up for judging. The first judge says, that's a pretty hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going to the world competition. So now the guy is at the world hairy fish competition. And so there are hairy fish from all over the globe. Every continent is represented. Every country. These are the hairiest fish ever. So the first judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Second judge says, that's really hairy. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going to the solar system. So now this is just unheard of for this guy. So he's put onto a spaceship with his hairy fish. They take him to Mars where the hairiest fish in the solar system will be judged. So he takes his hairy fish out of the cooler and lays it down on the Martian soil. The first judge says, that's a hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, that's the hairiest fish I ever saw. You win the prize. You're going to the galactic competition. So they put him onto a transwarp conduit and send him to the center of the galaxy where hairy fish from all over the galaxy are gathered to be judged. The first judge says, that's a hairy fish. Second judge says, that's a really hairy fish. Third judge says, I've seen hairier. (laughs) 
So yeah, that's the hairy fish, which is another example of a blue brick joke. Oh. <laughs> or a golden screw joke. Or a golden screw, yes. Gonna have to listen to that again. Yep, you're gonna have to edit it. <laughs> Are you going to be okay? I think so. Go on. <laughs> so my dad used to tell that one and it always used to both make me laugh. And it also puzzled me because I was like, well, where's the punchline here? <laughs> it doesn't really have a punchline. You really just wasted however many minutes trying to come up with what other levels of hairy fish competitions you could possibly come up with. And really, the joke is about the way that we come up with these artificial constructs and divisions. But what they also serve is something that puzzles us. It's not just an out and out riddle. It's just something that you kind of have to attack from all sorts of different angles until you find some sort of meaning that you've constructed for yourself. Right, because there is inherently absolutely no meaning. Yeah. And what I love about this is like, Tempe is the only one who finds this remotely satisfying. The golden screw story. Right. He's absolutely just busting a gut here. Like he is just absolutely beside himself with tears of laughter. I mean, it does have the same cadence as the blue brick joke, as well as the hairy fish competition joke. Essentially, baby's born, has a golden screw in his stomach. No one thinks much of it till he gets old enough to ask questions because he realizes that not everyone has a golden screw in their belly button. And he just asks person after person after person who are all like, oh, until he comes across somebody who is like an emperor or something. And he says, I don't know why this is here. And the emperor is like, OK, I have a golden screwdriver. <laughs> Ash falls off. Throughout all of this, Tempe is just laughing uproariously at this. Like, the image is so absurd to him, he can't help but laugh at this. Meanwhile, Hespa and Dedan and Martin are like, what did you just waste our time with here? <laughs> right. No, but I want to understand. Please help me understand. I don't understand. And they just go off in a huff. And Martin, I love the conversation with Martin afterward. He's like, what the hell kind of story was that? <laughs> and Kvothe is like, well, it's one that my dad used to tell me when he just wanted me to shut up after a while. <laughs> and Martin's reaction is, well, that's kind of mean. And Kvothe was like, no, no, I realize now as a almost adult, it was to get the inquisitive person who wouldn't shut up to shut up for a little bit. There is no answer to what the heck, but I was going to try to find one. And this is also where Kvothe has his second great big aha moment. He realizes that as he was trying to construct meaning for this utterly meaningless story, the meaning that he'd arrived at was something that was true for him and he held on to it. It came to be less about the specifics of the story, but rather it became a gift from his father. And then he realizes that 
the absurdity is the point. It's the questions that we can't answer that teach us the most. They teach us how to think. If you give a man an answer, all he gains is a little fact. But give him a question and he'll look for his own answers. That way, when he finds the answers, they'll be more precious to him. The harder the question, the harder we hunt. The harder we hunt, the more we learn. An impossible question. Eladin. Yep. This is exactly what Eladin has been doing this entire time. That's the point of his class. That's the point of pretty much every interaction he ever has with, I was going to say Kvothe, but I think I mean everyone. Oh, yeah. And Kvothe is just arrogant enough to believe that there's something wrong because he can't figure it out. I sat there silent and stunned by the scope of his instruction by my lack of understanding, by my lack of sight. He finally sits there and thinks to himself, he was teaching me to see. <sighs> I'm an idiot. So what I love about this interaction here is this truly does illustrate why Kvothe needed to leave the university. It also shows exactly why Kvothe needed to have a tedious task that has little to no brain power required, at least in this phase. He needed something that would push him outside of his comfort zone. He needed something that would get him interacting with people who weren't like him, who didn't think like him. He needed something that would challenge him in different ways. And he's gotten it in spades. And that's what's allowed him to have this epiphany. If he were to just approach this from the university, he would have just said, well, I'm just going to go to the archives. I'm going to look for the answer there. The archives will tell me the answer. Teach a man to fish. Exactly. It might be the hairiest fish you ever saw. <laughs> so with that out of the way, it's time for us to talk about our Frenemos. It's your turn this week. Who did you pick? I know we've been choosing Martin a lot, and I think I'm going to break from that tradition Martin's not not a good choice, but I think Tempe has to be it this time. If only because of the knowledge that he is passing on from his culture to Quoth. I don't get the impression that Tempe is strictly coming up with all of the things that he's telling Quoth out of whole cloth. Like, I think that a lot of the things that he is telling Quoth are things that are directly from the things he was taught by his culture, by his comrades, by his instructors back home. So it's almost like a game of telephone rather than a here's things for you to think critically about and then form your own opinions and then share those opinions. But I think that by passing on some of this cultural knowledge of how to express oneself, how to think about your family unit being a more comfortable space to express yourself freely versus outside of that unit. How does one comport themselves? The idea that laughter and tears are not to be held in. And it's that last one specifically too. So often people and mostly cis men are taught that tears are a sign of weakness that expressing your emotions 
your strong emotions, and generally just sadness, depression, upset, grief. Expressing that is a sign of weakness. Expressing happiness kind of gets split down the middle whether or not it's seen as weak or strong, but showing enthusiasm is sometimes seen as childish or weakness. Expressing anger, though, is shown as being strong and being worthy or what have you. And I think that that is such a backward way to look at it. I think also when I look at Tempe, he is someone who did not set out to become a teacher. He does not see that as his calling. This is not something he's prepared to do, but he is doing the best he can with what he knows and what he can think of in the moment. And I have to respect him for making that best effort. Like it would be really easy to just say, I'm going to give you the lessons that I got taught. But even then he doesn't know always what makes sense or what doesn't make sense. It's when Quoth asks questions that Tempe actually opens things up because those questions let him know that these are things that don't necessarily make sense to someone from outside that culture. And that's what helps them to find those bridges. And I thought that was a really powerful relationship that the two of them forge. They're teaching one another. And I think Tempe is a fascinating character. He's not perfect as a teacher. He'll be the first to admit that. Because <laughs> he's muddling and making it up as he goes along. I think most everyone in this is muddling and making it up as they go along. Even the people that seem to have it together. But anyway, I do think that Tempe is somebody to look at. And the ADEM in general are figures to look at in terms of trying to find wisdom. I think there's definitely some value in their way of life. I think the ADEM pose a challenge to the assumed norms that we kind of think of as universal that oftentimes really aren't. And it can be a reminder that there are a lot of solutions and ways of looking at the world that we haven't considered for good or ill. And when we run up against the limits of the culture that we were brought up with, it's worth considering from another angle. So I think you got some good stuff there. Thank you. So now it's my turn for the interesting fact of the week. So taking to heart the lessons of Master Elodin, it's time for us to learn something new. So this is a little bit different. It's not strictly a fact so much as it's a place. It's a place online called ComedyWildlifePhoto.com. They run a annual competition to find the funniest wildlife photo in the world. If you are looking for just something to brighten your day, I recommend hopping over there and taking a look. The People's Choice Awards are open for the 2022 batch. There's 40 finalists for you to go look through. I've already voted, and I think it's a lot of fun. And we shall see if the voting is still open by the time that this is released. I'm sorry. Yes. But, I mean, the thing is, like, things aren't always serious. I mean, sometimes you really do just got to look at animals doing silly, cute things to remind yourself that there's a great big world outside of our day-to-day -day issues. And these wildlife photographers were fortunate enough to capture these examples on camera. 
Some of my favorites include a duckling running across the backs of turtles on a log, which is adorable. There is like a bear cub chewing on an eagle feather as if pondering his next composition. There is also a waterbending squirrel. There is a bear getting hit in the ear with a fish. There is a lion cub biffing it into a tree. Like all sorts of just weird and hilarious photos on there that someone was able to capture. It sounds less like you're giving us an interesting fact this week and more like you're just giving us another recommended thing. Yeah, I kind of am. That's okay. I own that. I was just too enchanted with this to avoid doing it. (laughs) So with that, it's your turn for the actual thing of the week. What did you pick? So I don't want to really lean our podcast into the political side of things, but based on some of the things that we've said, you can probably tell where our politics lie. I watch Pod Save America, and they are a group of former staffers and speechwriters from the Obama administration that served in the White House. On the Crooked Media feed, John Favreau, not that John Favreau, different John Favreau, not Star Wars John Favreau, not Happy Hogan John Favreau, not talking about them. Uh, what? I was going to say Swingers John Favreau. Fair enough. Not that John Favreau, but speechwriter for Obama John Favreau. Say that about a million times and then not screw up his name. Anyway, has a podcast on Crooked Media's feed that is all about how to kind of take yourself offline. We live our lives day to day in such an online world. We think that Twitter is representative of all the people in a given country or all over the world. When the people on Twitter represent a tiny percentage of the people in the world. But we think that trends on Twitter or other social media represent wholly the trends of what regular Americans think or what regular Canadians think or what regular New Zealanders think or French people or Spanish people or any whatever. You just turn people into a monolith that is the opinions on Twitter. Or we think that because some of us are so tuned into politics online that everyone's political views line up with what you see online when the majority of people's political views is no thank you. And so John has conversations with people who, yes, are part of the media ecosystem, are part of the online YouTube ecosystem or have podcasts or do news shows, trying to figure out what they do to disengage from things like Twitter and social media, to disengage from politics, to go offline, as it were. The series is called Offline. He's interviewed people from Ezra Klein to Hank Green. I really liked that one. Rachel Maddow was recently on there talking about her podcast that covers things from American politics in the 1940s. And... I find the conversations about things that aren't just the politics of right now to be very engaging and 
fascinating and how people can critique social media, can critique things like YouTube, can critique the things that are just a feed from the internet into your brain, especially when they live in such an online world, an online culture. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot as well. I found a lot of these conversations to be really enlightening. One of the things that I spend a lot of my time thinking about is the ways that algorithms influence what gets shown to us and which views get amplified and oftentimes how little control we actually have over that. You know, sometimes we run up against things because the algorithm says that this is something that either generates engagement, whether that is a positive or a negative reaction. And most of the time it's actually amplifying the negative reaction. Right. And I think sometimes you have content that's designed explicitly just to game the algorithm and gain engagement scores and thus drive up revenue for the platform owners rather than something that's actually representing anything true about the world. And so it can be really easy to get caught up in these distortions and it can shift the way you think about things. I strongly encourage people to think critically about the content that gets served up to them and how they engage with it. What does it mean to have something show up on a trending tweet? What does it mean to have that trending tweet then amplified by bias news media? And what does it mean to engage with it? Like, do you need to retweet this? Are you doing anybody any favors by further amplifying it? Are you thinking critically about what it is that you are seeing before you share it with everybody? For instance, the NyQuil chicken thing. For anyone who knows the original NyQuil chicken stuff, it was a joke. It was not meant to be serious, and it is years old. But it recently became a trending thing on, I guess, TikTok. And then it got spread to clueless people in the news media, usually local news, and then amplified to national news, who didn't bother to look into it for half a second. And the other thing that I think about in a lot of these is that a lot of very smart people have realized that if they want to control discourse, sometimes the most powerful way to do so is to amplify things that elicit disgust. Or that elicit arguments. Right. Hank Green just recently had a video about a math problem that could be read as either one of two answers, and you could be correct, or the other correct answer is that this math problem sucks. Your choices are to build this weird coherentist worldview that may or may not be true based on just this framing that you've accepted unquestioningly. Because it's what you've been told you have to accept. Or you can reject the framing altogether and just say, this is a bad math problem. And I think that offline, the podcast we're talking about, is a good stepping stone towards reminding us all to think critically 
about the media that we take in, but not just the media that we take in, but the media that we engage with, the things that we let make us angry, and the things that we have a visceral need to just respond to or react to or share so that you can get validation that your opinion about it is right. I have a few rules regarding my actions on social media, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about them before, but essentially if I make a comment on a post, usually it's going to be something that a friend of mine posted or something that I feel I actually have something to contribute. So if there's like 128 replies to this one thing, I'm pretty sure that my contribution by now is not useful. So I just don't. But if it's something where I can legitimately help dispel something or answer something or contribute something funny to, sure. If my comment gets either purposefully or accidentally taken out of context or misunderstood, I will allow myself one attempt to clarify my point. And then if whoever got angry or reactive or whatever toward me in the first place gets continuously angry and tries to like undermine my point or my conversational whatever the hex, or if they are blatantly bigoted, I'm like, nope, hands off, that's done. Because by that point, you're just having an argument with a stranger on the internet. And nobody wins that. No. Especially if you're having this argument on one of your friend's walls. No. No, no. Yeah, I tend to apply the Craig Ferguson question of, does this need to be said? Right. I find myself asking that a lot. Is my opinion really required here? Are people going to take what I have to say seriously on this? And usually the things that I reply to in groups are people asking a very specific question that I can very specifically answer. Or there are things that like a friend of mine has posted and I just want to have a conversation with my friend. I try not to engage in things that are just outrage for outrage sake. I think that's wise. Thank you. So with that, let's move on to our seven words. There are a few that I think are kind of nice. Okay. I've always been drawn to a challenge. It was a secret thing of sorts. Referring to Tempe's hand gestures and sign language. This is ridiculous. I'm going to sleep. I think I've felt that a few times. <laughs> there was a moment of stunned silence. I mean, how else do you respond to... And then his ash fell off. Both being flippant and saying, I thought we were just telling stories. And then the one that I did choose, it gave me something to think about. All right. I think that's a good one. Thank you. I think it also suits my recommended thing and just the theme of this little section. I really like that quote. I think there's a lot for us to think about when we're listening to these sorts of stories, when we read our books. It's why we read. It's why we do this podcast, because we've got a lot to think about. And I think that the more we engage with these things, 
the more we devote some time to think about something seemingly offhand, non-serious, we can arrive at some deeper truths. We can have our little meaning that we've gotten from a blue brick story. I mean, watch as it turns out that the entire King Killer Chronicle is just a great big blue brick story. <laughs> so I think there's some fun there. I think you picked a good one. Thank you. I had seven words from life and I picked, I'll be in to make you smile. For context, while trying to help you find something yesterday, I had inadvertently made a bit of a mess in one of your craft drawers and you were cleaning it up this afternoon and you asked me to come in and I was like, well, I'll be in to keep you company. I'll be in to make you smile. I think there is something that is underestimated, but is really important. Having company while doing a tedious task. Yeah, doing a tedious task by yourself really sucks. And so it might sound a little funny that you made the mess and I cleaned it up. A, my craft drawer. I know how I want it. B, what you spilled was perler beads. Probably like 50 of them. In a drawer that I would like to keep nice and tidy. I'm not going to ask you to pick up perler beads. They are a pain in the butt. You don't like trying to pick up little tiny things. I don't blame you. Also, the way that I have everything set up, putting them away should have required a funnel and I didn't have one. It would have been a pain and probably led to more spillage of tiny craft beads all over my craft area. Quicker for me to do it, but I still wanted your company. And it was more like, hey, you made a mess. I'm going to clean it up. That's fine. But I would like your company as a reward for doing the thing that is like cleaning up after you. <laughs> well, and I'm glad I was able to come keep you company. Me too, because I liked having our conversations. I liked being able to kind of pregame the podcast with you a little bit. And you've been helping me a lot with some craft projects and... It's all appreciated. Yay. Even if you made a mess in my drawer. Sorry about the mess. But I'm glad I could keep you company. Glad I could make you smile. I like being sweet to you. Aw. And now we've made the entire audience vomit. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 84 through 86 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of borders and boundaries. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash WaystonePod, where you can get access to the show a little bit early, as well as really awesome, never-before-listened-to episodes of our bonus pod on the Sandman and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding.
All right, note to editing me. Will forgot to do his recap. Did you remember to do your interesting fact? Yes, I did. I have interesting fact and words from the book, or not book, life. It's like, wait a second. No, I did the words from the... <laughs> no, I got my interesting fact. I've got my seven words. Yes, I have all of that. Okay, you just forgot to do your recap. Just the recap. Okay. How about we do everything but the recap and I'll just edit it in. Edit it in. Edit it in. Edit it in. <laughs>